Hi, Victoria. How are you? Hey, buenos dias. Happy Monday. Yes, happy Monday. <laughs> Indeed it is. Uh, yeah, welcome everyone. We'll start then around um, 5 to 10 minutes. Um, or 11. Yep. <laughs> Thank you for coming. <laughs> I usually open and I always say the same things. I usually open. Hello, everyone. Good morning, Jamie. Another early bird. Hope you're all well. Mm. How's guitar? Very well, thank you. Maybe. How's the weather? Oh, sorry, Katarina. Oh, no, go ahead. Hi, Federico. Oh, Federico. Am I saying the name right? <laughs> I want to make sure. Um, to unmute, it's, yeah, there you go. Yes, hello, yes, now it's correct. It's Federico, indeed, thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I wrote in the email, Frederico. Um, like um, in Portuguese, we sometimes spell it that way, and kind of I spelled the name wrong, so I'm sorry about that. And thank you for coming. Um, thanks. Very welcome, Doctor. It's lovely to be here. Thank you very much for coming. Good morning. Oh. oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. finished. I was just greeting. <laughs> Is the weather still rainy in Switzerland or is it better? Oh, right now it's excellent and all weekend has been uh, fantastic. So, oh, perfect. Everything is good. Uh, I'm glad to hear. We had the guest speaker last week, right? It was beginning of last week or last weekend uh, that said that the weather has been horrible, rainy, but mm. I'm glad it improves. <laughs> it improves. So, who saw the moon last night? Well, I didn't, but is it everywhere that uh, you have the, I think it's- Well, I looked, yeah, it was, you could see it um, from what I, I just looked in Europe and across uh, North America, but it looked as though, but it sounds like um, people did not witness the total lunar eclipse. It was so, we had a beautiful sky was partially cloudy and really for some reason I don't know it was this beautiful midnight blue um, but the patches that had sky didn't have the moon in them and I was looking at the right time I really like to witness the celestial events but um, anyone else yeah I like witnessing them too I just and it was very cloudy here so I, I don't think we would have seen it that soon. Yeah, but um, I saw one uh, uh, solar eclipse when I was still a student in Germany. We had in Europe. Uh, when? I saw one in Germany too. Oh, I don't know. Uh, it was 2000 or 99 yeah. yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> exactly. We saw the same one. It's so exciting. Oh, you were in Germany too. <laughs> That's yeah, so we went to Germany to see the eclipse. Oh, you went there. Oh, interesting. Yes, yeah, I was there. Mm, it was really sweet because people, everybody had their solar viewing glasses on. 
And so it felt kind of like a bonding experience because everybody just came outside and, you know, sat on the park benches or wherever they were. And, and it was long enough that we drove to a second location and just parked them, you know, like tried to follow the eclipse. Oh, and, that's cool. Mm, it was so fun. Was so and there was a partial one here in the U.S. a few years ago when I was at Stony Brook University. Oh, we had a total and it went exactly through my city. And so oh, I had wow. a bunch of people come and we actually watched it from my driveway. I had people staying here. And it was amazing to have such a, a you know, an exciting thing just happen right on the drive. <laughs> like right, right. Yeah, it was total here. And, and the thing was really that I remember so much more than visually was that the temperature changed dramatically. It was warm and then it, it came, it was, it was almost like walking into a refrigerator. It wasn't like it was chilly, but it was a different kind of, it was, it was different. It just, you could feel it on your skin. I loved that eclipse. Did you notice that? Were you, you had it partially where you were, right? Uh, at Stony Brook, yeah, I didn't notice any temperature change, but it's pretty humid. I think it was kind of summer. What yeah. season was it? Yeah. I forgot, but it's pretty humid. So I don't think, um, yeah, and the partial one, I don't think you, you feel it that much, but yeah, it's interesting. Uh, we'll start in around five minutes. Um, <clears throat> welcome, everyone. Thank you. Uh, for being patient and waiting here, everyone in the audience. And thank you for for the Federico for coming. Um, we are very excited for your talk. Um, it's um, yeah, it's it's a very exciting time, and we will have a lot of questions <laughs> when we can basically start using this and solve all of the issues of humanity. So it's right. amazing that you work in that field. And it's a great <laughs> honor to have you here. It is such an honor. And the sun is, is fusion. This is kind of a related topic. Yeah, definitely. Yep. <laughs> I was reading your paper, Doctor, and um, the, the amount that I could understand looked ingenious to me. Just um, your, your problem-solving solution to some of these uh, issues that I think you were having with dealing with the plasma. I'm just I'm really, very much looking forward to this talk. Thank you. I hope uh, I hope you'll find it interesting and I hope I'll be able to explain it in a way that's understandable for everybody. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, it's it's the challenges that maybe are the particularly interesting parts. I was actually quoting parts of the paper to Katerina earlier, and I was, um, uh, by the way, I'm Jamie, by the way, um, and uh, and I was saying to her, how cool does that sound? <laughs> like dealing with plasma controls and everything. This just sounds so amazing. Now I'm curious which part of the paper you were citing. Um, oh, uh, let me see. Katerina, which part was it? It was... It was literally, it was literally just a line talking about um, how your experiments, all your experiments were dealing with um, 
Like oh, basically I, to, uh-huh. You ahead. want me to read it? Yeah, um, yeah, 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 just the point. Each experiment begins with standard plasma formation procedures. <laughs> just even that little part. Does that sentence sound from the paper? <laughs> <laughs> it's true, it does. <laughs> just straight away, just that's a small line and already I'm thinking, wow, how cool is that? <laughs> Yeah, I, I I realize these things are indeed very cool. Uh, if you look at it, uh, if you look, if you hear these things for the first time, it's really strange actually how used you also get to these things. Like we have a tokamak uh, in our uh, lab here at the university in Switzerland at EPFL, and we make these kind of plasmas like 30 times per day. So all of a sudden, uh, if you see them the first time, I remember seeing my first plasma, I was really excited, and somehow it's also something that you get. Uh, you get you used to. So it's good also to hear how exciting it sounds for people who maybe don't get to deal with these things every day. Yeah, I, I even had to look up exactly what that machine was that you're talking about. The, is it Takamura machine? Yeah. Yeah, it's called um, a Tokamak. I'll tell more about this. Tokamak, sorry, bigger part. Tokamak, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and the different shapes that you were making from it, which, like, of course, you, you'll get to all of this, but as I said, very exciting. Very much enjoyed the paper. Okay, I think we can slowly start <clears throat> by introducing you and then we'll go from there. Um, so welcome everyone to the Science Society. Um, happy Monday, everyone. And uh, we are very excited to have here our special guest, uh, Federico, um, Dr. Federico uh, Felici. And he will talk about um, the, pre um, the paper that was recently published and the title is Magnetic Control of Tokamak uh, Plasmas Through Deep Reinforcement Learning. And let me give you a little bit of uh, background information. Um, Dr. Federico Felici is a research scientist at the Swiss Plasma Center <clears throat> at EPFL Lausanne. He holds um, master's degree in systems and control from Delft University of Technology and a PhD in plasma physics from the Swiss Plasma Center at the EPFL Switzerland. And um, his research interests include all aspects of tokamak plasma control, in particular control-oriented modeling, model-based controller design, and integration of control solutions on current and future devices. Um, yeah, so um, thank you so much. And, um, he also won um, a f uh, several awards. Uh, one is the award for best PhD thesis um, of um, his year. And um, yeah, so we are very honored to have you here because your work, if you're successful, you will solve all the problems of humanity. So it's a very big deal and special honor to have you here today. And um, Victoria, go ahead with your question. Thank you.
All right. Thank you, Katarina. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, yes, Dr. Felici, uh, Science Society welcomes you. We're so happy to have you here. And really looking forward to learning about your research into nuclear fusion using magnetic confinement. And also what this could mean, as Katarina said, toward a promising path towards sustainable energy. So yay. Um, and about you, beyond hearing about your research, we like to uh, make a path toward uh, really welcoming you and introducing you to our audience. And so it's interesting to learn about people's different connections to science. So my question to you is, looking back through your life, can you reflect on a moment or experience, maybe a, you know, a relative or a class or something that happened that may have provided the spark of curiosity that has developed into your interest in science? Thank you for your uh, question. Yeah, I'm very happy to be here. Thanks you. Thank you very much for the introduction. Uh, it's really, an, uh, I'm really happy. It's really an honor to be talking to you about all this exciting exciting work yeah i'm happy to start by answering your first uh, question um i mean i don't know when i actually decided i wanted to be a scientist it's something that came kind of naturally at the beginning from you know a natural inclination in high school i liked physics and i like math and these sorts of things and maybe one interesting part is that i also liked science fiction uh, very much as a kid i watched the kids like star trek and next generation and tv shows like uh, kind of like like that and I was always interested in this kind of uh, technology, the fact that you could just use technology to solve problems, difficult problems that you always had some kind of technological solution. And while I realized, of course, it's just, you know, it's just science fiction. So it's just a, a, a TV show. There was something about this kind of optimism about solving humanity's problems in the future through technology, which I think uh, really spoke, uh, spoke to, to me. Yeah. And then when I, uh, yeah, my, my, path led through several stages at several stages. I first studied uh, aerospace engineering originally, and then I realized I was more attracted to more of the mathematically oriented aspects of engineering. So then I studied systems and control, which is a very generic uh, uh, field of study, actually, because you learn to control uh, systems kind of independently from for what from what kind of system it is specifically, right? It could be a machine like a mechanical machine or an airplane, or it could be an electrical system, or it could be even something in the environment, like, for example, I don't know, a hydroelectric dam or something like that. They can all be fundamentally described with the same kinds of equations, and you learn control tools to apply these in a generic way to any kind of system. So when I was done with that, I was looking for a PhD position and an interesting thing to do with the tools I've learned in control and control engineering. And at the time, I, by coincidence, uh, heard about uh, nuclear fusion and the fact that there are many control problems to be solved in nuclear fusion. So I found that very attractive to merge my interest in control, to combine my interest in control with doing something, you know, which is, would be good for against climate change and uh, good for the environment on the long term and also be a really challenging, interesting technical challenge uh, as well. So then, uh, yeah, then I did my PhD and then things kind of continued uh, from there. I appreciate all the detail in your answer. Thank you. And I know you haven't been here before. I see your party hat. So again, welcome to Science Society and welcome to Clubhouse. Um, but what I'd like to share with you is that um, from asking the, the different guest researchers, I'm seeing this thread of the desire to problem solve and then using the education 
to find the tools to do that, whatever, whatever um, the curiosity is that, you know, that is motivating you. And you've done such a fabulous job of answering the question that you led straight into my second question, which would have been to ask you, what was the path that led you to your research today? And you have already brought us there. So thank you so much. At this point, um, the mic will be yours and you're welcome to uh, begin your, your talk and tell us about your work. And then afterward, it's our tradition to have a Q&A, if that's okay with you. Some guests prefer to have the Q&A as they're speaking, um, and it's totally up to you. But uh, the mic is yours, and you're welcome to begin. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you very much. Yeah, as I, uh, uh, so yeah, this is the first time for me actually speaking in this clubhouse, so I have to get used to the format as, as well. But um, yeah, I suggest I just start speaking about it and didn't really prepare a presentation. I'm just going to speak about the work and then refer to some particular figures for some parts of it, which are listed, which are on the actual uh, paper, which you can find um, online. And I think was also shared in this group or in this room, I think it's called like that. And uh, for the questions, yeah, um, of course the Q&A at the end is fine. And also if during the talk, there's like an, 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 some kind of urgent question, it's fine to uh, interrupt. I might just not always be looking at the screen. I might not always be looking at the phone. So if it's important and it's in the chat, chat for example, then somebody might, uh, might just be, speak up. So if that's all okay, I'll just get uh, going. Yes, if I, if I may just let you know that yeah. it's our intention that you can relax in here and it's up to us to do any moderating. So okay. we, will, we will handle things such as questions. And if there's also anything, for example, if you think of a link that you'd like to share, if you just mention it, then any of us will be happy to share it in the chat. And as you can see, the link to your work is above, so you can refer to all of the slides. So we've got you covered. Relax. All right, thank you. Fantastic. <laughs> yes, and, and um, yeah, when, when we do bring friends up, then please flash your mics and let us call on you so that we can establish an order of offering the questions to our guest, and that would really help with the room flow. So thank you so much, and I pass the mic back to you. All right, thank you. So first of all, let me just give a brief introduction to fusion and what it is we're trying to achieve with this research, uh, and also what the actual status is of fusion research right now, right? Because that is kind of the context within which all of this work took place. So. Fusion fundamentally, nuclear fusion is the process that powers, for example, stars, that powers the, the, all the stars in the universe by fusing hydrogen atoms, which are very small and very light, into he heavier uh, atoms. And basically, research on nuclear fusion on Earth is mostly about being able to replicate those kind of conditions in which atoms, light atoms, can fuse into heavier ones to replicate these kind of conditions on Earth. Now, the problem is that it's incredibly hard to do. In the sun, it works because the sun is so massive that due to its gravity, it has an enormous pressure in its core. And that's why this fusion uh, can take place. But if you want to do the same thing on Earth, um, this is difficult uh, to do, uh, in particular because the matter that you have to use for this, uh, for this fusion is actually in a state of matter called the plasma. And when something is in the state of plasma, it means that the ions and electrons are dissociated from each other. So you have ions and electrons freely flying around instead of being, um, you know, bound to the atoms being, uh, you know, a combination of ions and electrons being bound to each other. 
So in a plasma, is, everything is so hot that the electrons and ions just fly around. So a way we found to try to keep these ions and electrons together long enough and uh, to high enough pressures so that the fusion process can occur is by confining it by magnetic fields. So we use, because the plasma is electrically, the plasma particles are, are you know, electrically charged, ions are positive and electrons are negative. This means that by using magnetic fields, we can hold these plasma, these, this plasma to, together and increase its pressure for long enough that the fusion process can actually occur. Now this in theory has been understood since the 1950s and 60s. And since then, the research has been about creating a device, a device on earth in a, in a laboratory which can actually make these plasmas, which go to such a high temperature and such a high uh, pressure and keep the plasma confined long enough that the fusion conditions can occur. Now you can imagine that there's a kind of balance between all the power you need to put into the device to actually heat the first the gas and then make it into a plasma and heat it to these extreme temperatures. We're talking about a hundred million degrees on earth for what we need, a hundred million degrees. That's really extreme temperatures, of course. And, you know, you need power to uh, get to these temperatures. And at some point, if the conditions are right, you start to get power back because the fusion reactions are happening. So at some point, if you reach high enough pressures, then you can get the um, uh, power from the fusion reactions. And then eventually the goal is to, you know, heat up water and then drive uh, some kind of uh, turbine and make electricity in the same way as you would in any other regular power, power plants like uh, that we have. Uh, that we have not now that we have to today so the goal is to make these kind of machines uh machines work and there have been various attempts at making configurations machines with configurations of magnetic fields to confine these flat plasmas now it would take too far to actually go and discuss all these in detail but one particular one which has been quite successful is the so-called tokamak configuration and in the tokamak uh, if you look at the uh, yeah, if you look at the, uh, at the actual paper and you open figure number one, which is on page, uh, I guess, two, um, depending on how you're looking, it's on figure number one. If you look at figure G, you see what the tokamak actually looks like. So you see there's a combination of various, these, these things which you see going, um, going around are like these electrical coils which carry electricity and they are used to create the plasma to confine the magnetic to confine uh, uh, so they're used to make the magnetic fields to confine this plasma and the 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 actual plasma is the thing you see in the core the thing in yellow um which is then yeah held in place by these uh, magnetic fields created by these magnetic co coils so the trick of a tokamak is to actually uh, make the system axisymmetric so you see in this figure it's axisymmetric meaning you know, it's shaped like a tall torus. So it's like uh, uh, the magnetic field lines are closed on each other because of this donut-like shape of the magnetic field. Now, in, uh, in principle, this all works fine and people have been studying tokamaks already since the 19, 1960s. And we have been able to make increasingly high temperatures and increasingly high pressures in these uh, systems, in these to tokamaks. So, um, and what we found out is that by making tokamaks bigger and bigger and putting more and more power into them, we can reach closer and closer to the conditions where it actually becomes uh, profitable from an energy point of view to actually make the plasma and you get more energy out or more power coming out 
than what you're putting into them. So, um, yeah, so this research has been ongoing for many, many years. And actually now we're at the stage where we're, the construction is underway of the world's uh, biggest tokamak, which should be the first to generate more power than you are uh, uh, putting in, which is called Ether. If you want, there's a, you can look it up on ether.org. So ether.org is the, is the website which explains this incredible uh, construction site, which is now Ether, this incredible project where there's many countries participating. Uh, almost all the world is participating in this big scientific uh, endeavor to make this gigantic tokamak, which should be the first where there's more power coming out of the plasma with respect to what you're putting in. So this is just to give you an idea of a flavor of what nuclear fusion research lo looks like right now. And I should say, it's, I mean, it's a very, uh, it's, it's a research field that's very active and there are many, many researchers across uh, various research communities in many different countries working all together on this problem, both from the engineering point of view and from the, let's say more, uh, yeah, the engineering point of view to actually construct and to design these tokamaks and from the physics point of view to try to understand fundamentally how these uh, tokamaks work and how these plasmas work so that we can improve how they behave and control the plasma to as high as possible uh, pre pressures, for example. So uh, yeah, then specifically about the work that we did uh, here, as I mentioned, one of the issues with having one of these, with having a, a tokamak is that you need control to actually keep your tokamak plasma where it is. So in order to control, to make sure that the plasma stays there, you have to actively feedback control, control it, which means that you have to take measurements in real time about what is happening in the tokamak. For example, you have to measure locally the magnetic, magnetic field and a number of other interesting quantities. You need to measure these in real time and then feed this to some uh, computer, which very quick, quickly, 10,000 times per second in our case, needs to decide what to do. What to do in terms of how to control the, uh, the coils used to generate the magnetic fields to confine the pla plasma, how to control these coils. So every uh, yeah, 10,000 times per second, the computer has to do, make a decision about what to do. And not only, and, the, and increasing uh, an other extra problem with this is that the actual position of the, the plasma is unstable. This means that if you don't do anything, the plasma will just by itself uh, fly away and go against the wall, for example. Now, in the majority of the tokamaks that exist today, this is not a huge problem because the walls are made of a material which can, uh, which can actually withstand this without any issues. Uh, but in the future devices we want to make, uh, this may be more pr problematic, I would like to say not from the point of view of like human sa safety and these sorts of things, I should say nuclear fusion for a number of reasons, which I can't go into today, is much more safe than the nuclear fission reactors that we have um, today. So there's no risk of like catastrophic me meltdowns and things like that. Um, but it might be that if you're not uh, careful and your plasma becomes unstable, it might be that it could, for example, damage the reactors and then you have to re repair it, which of course is a bit, um, so it's something that you want to try to avoid, of course. So this control is really, um, uh, re really important to do. It's actually absolutely essential to do this control. This is why for many years, 
since the first days of Tokamak research, people have um, uh, understood how, how to do this and have tackled this problem using traditional control engineering te techniques. So I told you earlier, I started originally as a control engineer. So in engineering, uh, there's all sorts of fantastic techniques to do design of control systems, starting from the mathematical description of the system that you're trying to control. So you can do that for a tokamak as well. For the tokamak, you can write down the equations which explain how this uh, tokamak plasma is going to move depending on what you do with these control co coils. It is really quite, quite literally, as you see uh, in this, again, in this figure, what 1G, you know, you have all these control coils like these yellow ones, for example, and if you increase or decrease the current in one of these coils, the plasma will move to the left or to the right, for example. So the way this has been uh, uh, tackled with the original control engineering approaches is to describe this in using a mathematical model. And then, um, yeah, with this mathematical model, there's control engineering techniques to derive what kind of, uh, uh, how you can design a controller for your tokamak. So the controller, for example, but so the traditional way it's been done is you can actually see it in figure 1D. If you look at the part where it says, uh, sorry, actually F, where it says conventional control. So in conventional control, you would actually split the problem into different pieces. You could, for example, say, let's first control the uh, position of the, of the plasma in the vertical direction and in the radial direction, for example. And then you make a specific controller for that, and they have to be independent somehow. And then you make another controller for the total current in the plasma. That's another quantity we need to control. And then you make another part of the control for the so-called plasma shape, which is basically when we say the plasma shape, we mean, if you look again now at figure 1H, where it says vessel cross-section, you can see this plasma has a kind of a shape, which is this black uh, curve, which is going around the plasma. And there's an X somewhere. And you see the plasma has a particular, uh, particular sh shape, right? It's not quite circular. It's slightly, uh, it's has a slight e elonga elongation, how we call, call this. And so this plasma shape is something you want to control because this plasma shape has also important effects on how good the plasma is going to be at magnetic confinement, at confining, your, at getting high pre pressures, for example. So the traditional way is to do this again, separating the problem into various individual control loops and then trying to um, control these all at the same time in some way by basically by tuning the control parameters, first using a mathematical model and then by tuning them empirically often on your tokamak, you try an experiment, you try to make one of these plasmas, it doesn't work. And then you tune, you change your control ga gains, how we call them, we change these gains in a way until it works. So this was the starting point of our research is that these kind of techniques already exist and they're very successful and many tokamaks around the world uh, work every day and create all of these, create all the plasmas they want with these kind of existing control te techniques. But so what we try to do is to try to find a, an, an easier way or an alternative way to design these controllers. So I mentioned in the traditional techniques, you're relying on a mathematical model. You have to make, have to make specific assumptions to derive this mo model. Um, and also, as I said, it's quite uh, tedious in some ways to have to tune all of these control games because there might be like 20 different parameters and you need to tune them all because they all have an effect 
on what, how your plasma is behaving and how your plasma control is actually working. Now, what we try to do is to try to solve the whole problem in one go. So it, at the same time, try to do everything to, to control all the quantities at the same time, and also uh, try to, you know, to go directly from the magnetic measurements. So from the measurements of what's happening in, inside the tokamak, go directly to the actual the control. So directly say, this is what the different control coils should do. So that's shown actually in figure one E. So you see, as opposed to the conventional control with the various different blocks and various different loops that you have to tune, just to make one single, what we call a control po policy. So that's just one single, uh, one single blo block, if you want, which will do all of the control. So that's what we try to do. And in particular, we try to design this using a technique called reinforcement lear learning. So this is where it's really important to remember that this work was done, as I said, by EPFL, which is my uh, university, where we have the TCV, Tokamak, uh, which is, yeah, again, a Tokamak that we use for scientific research to study these kinds of things, including control problems. And for this work, we collaborated with uh, the group at DeepMind, which some of you may know, DeepMind is a research part of uh, basically of Google, and they do research on artificial intelligence, in particular on reinforcement learning. So ours was a collaboration with them, where they have all these tools to solve con control problems using reinforcement learning. And so we applied together, we worked together to apply these techniques on the tokamak control pro problem. Now I'll very briefly explain what reinforcement learning is. So reinforcement learning is a technique from in the field of artificial intelligence, which is a way to try to get computers to learn things in a similar way as hu humans beings learn things by basically by interacting with the environment, which means they just try to try things out, you know, like a, like a ch child would try things out, interacting with the, with the to toys in his or her environment, in their environment to uh, yeah, interact with, with these toys and try, try to figure out, you know, how to get the, the outcome that they, that they are looking for. So reinforcement learning is trying to do the same thing, but trying to teach, to make computers learn in the same way. So what we did in this specific case is to apply reinforcement learning to learn how to control a tokamak by interacting with a simulation of the to tokamak. This had two parts. One needed to actually have a good simulation, which describes accurately how the tokamak behaves, meaning what actually happens in the tokamak when I put certain currents in certain uh, co coils, what kind of plasma behavior do I expect, and what kind of measurements do I uh, expect to see, right? So this is really where all the physics knowledge and the engineering knowledge has to go in to make models of sufficient quality that they can really represent what, uh, how the tokamak plasma is going to evolve as a function of, as a function of time and as a function of all of these inputs that you're putting in. So once we have this mathematical mo model, then we apply reinforcement learning, which means basically that you're having your uh, computer controller interact with this simulation many times. So basically the controller is trying out different things. At the beginning, it will fail. It will not do the correct thing. And then it gets, uh, you know, a bad, bad, a bad score, score. Uh, basically, that's the idea. And then when you, when it accidentally does something good, then it gets a ha higher score. For example, if it maintains the plasma stable and inside 
the inside the, the uh, successfully maintains the plasma inside the reactor for a long time, it will get a good score. And if the plasma becomes unstable and ends up in the wall, it gets a bad score. So then you, by using this, there's all sorts of very sophisticated algorithms to then actually get your um, reinforcement learning to work. So to learn what control should be should 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 be done. So how it should be uh, how the control system should um, should act and how the controller should be behave. And um, yeah, so th this 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 uh, this was really interesting to see that you can do this already just in the simulation. So already just by uh, being able to just learn by interacting with the simulation, learn how to control a, a tokamak plasma. This is already very very. A very in interesting thing that that just w works. Um, but then the next step we took was even more interesting. We actually took the controller that we had learned from the simulation and actually applied that to the actual control of the real to tokamak. So we took the controller, which, which, which was learned using reinforcement learning, and we applied that to our tokamak here, uh, the TCV tokamak at EPFL, at the Swiss Plasma Center. And we uh, saw after, you know, after there was still a little bit of trial and error that I might tell you more about in a second, but relatively quickly, we got this to work and we really saw that it uh, worked the way we had, uh, we had expected. So the plasma was indeed maintained in a proper way as we had expected. Now, what is the advantage of doing things like this compared to the original, uh, original con control engineering techniques? So as I mentioned, one advantage is that you don't have to tune these individual gains. It solves everything in one go by trial and error, and you get one big controller out which does everything. Now, another advantage is that you're very flexible in how you specify what you actually want in the sense of how do I want my plasma to actually look? So like what kind of plasma shape do I want? Where do I want this little red X? If you look at the, again, the figure one, one, one H. Where do I want this little red X? This can be in many different places. Where do I want it? Well, you can specify where you want it. You can specify which things about your plasma do you find important and for which things can the control system just choose by itself what to do, right? So for some, you can specify in a completely different way. If you use the traditional control engineering techniques, you have to exactly say, I want that plasma to be in this position at every moment in time. I want my shape to be like this at every moment in time. But with these reinforcement learning techniques, because in the end, we only are going to give the thing a, a score, we can decide how we're going to make this score. So we can put in the score, we can put the things that we actually care about and the things that we don't care about, we don't, don't need to put in, into, into there. So this is really a great advantage because it makes everything much more flexible in terms of how you, uh, how you, how you prepare your controller and how you specify what you want to, to do. So this is, um, yeah, so this is to, to explain, right, the advantages and the disadvantages. But now, of course, you're probably all interested in actually seeing what this thing can do. So if you go, for example, down to uh, figure number two, you can say an ex example, figure number two in the paper, fundamental capability demonstration shows an example of actually controlling uh, the plasma uh, in the tokamak using this particular controller trained using reinforcement learning, so trained using artificial intelligence. And you see the plasma begins, and then at uh, 0.1 seconds, we uh, switch, switch from uh, having, you know, we switch to the machine, machine learning controller, the reinforcement learning controller, 
And you see the, that because we had pro programmed it like this, the plasma first moves to a different location. It, it starts kind of high up in the vessel and then it moves kind of to the center and then it forms this so-called X points, right? cross that we were speaking about earlier, and then brings it back all the way to the top, top at some point. So it's really manipulating the, uh, the current in the coils to achieve, achieve this in real time. So 10,000 times a second is making a decision about what to do. And if we now go to figure three, you see that we try this on many different configurations. So many different, uh, different sh shapes. So we're interested in studying many different shapes in tokamak to see which ones work better or not and you see like in figure three a b c and d you see a number of these different shapes that we actually did and that the controller was successfully able to uh, achieve and we did something else in number figure number four you see even an example where we used the uh, reinforcement learning controllers to do something new which is to make actually two different plasmas at the same time one at the bottom and one at the top of our uh, tokamak. And this was really something new, which was easy to do with the reinforcement learning because we just had to change this score. We only had to say, now, instead of the score being, for example, the position or the X point location or these sorts of things, we just said, make two plasmas and put them in this position and uh, have this much electrical current in them. And then the tokamak and then the reinforcement learning controller would take care of this. And we'll just uh, do, do this by by more or less by, by, by itself. So this was for us the first time that we could actually control so accurately and for such a long time, these two separate plasmas in the tokamak at the same time. So with this, I think I can um, maybe for now um, conclude this te technical part. Maybe I'll say just a few words about where we want this work to actually go. Um, to conclude, right? Because now we looked at, we use reinforcement learning to solve the magnetical magnetic control pro problem, right? What I talked about today was the use of the electrical coils to control the location of where the plasma is. But that's not the only problem we need to solve, of course. And this we could do already uh, since many years we knew how to control plas plasmas. We just found a new way, a, a, a much more flexible and very interesting way of doing this. Now, in the in the few future, what will be really interesting is to see if we can extend this idea and this concept to actually control more aspects of the plasma. For example, we want the plasma pressure to be very high. We want the confinement time to be very high. So we want to have good plasmas that can make a lot of fusion power in the end. That's what we're all trying to study and what we're all trying to achieve is to have very high levels of fusion power because that's what's going to get us our, our electricity production in the end at some point. So what we would like to do is, for example, to say, well, you know what, just make, just te tell the reinforcement learning system just to say, please make the best plasma that you can, where by best, we would mean, for example, with the one with the highest pressure or with the highest amount of fusion power, for example, and, um, then they are, the ultimate dream is that we could really ask the, uh, the machine learning or the artificial intelligence to maybe design a whole, an entire fusion reactor for us. If we just say, make the biggest the, uh, fusion reactor, which makes this much power uh, that has, let's say, maximum uh, this kind of co cost or try to make the cost as small as you, as you can, can, for example. The ultimate goal is that you would be able to do this, but it's, of course, it's much more complicated than what we did right now. 
The first reason is that you need to add all sorts of uh, physics effects inside the mathematical model that you use to actually, um, you know, that their reinforcement learning agent has to interact with. This model has to be much more complicated. Now we have only the model for the magnetic control, which is just one part of the whole fusion uh, problem. To have the entire modeling of how an entire tokamak behaves requires you to also model the internal effect of how the pressure increases as a function of how much you heat it. And there's very complicated physics and very sophisticated physics mechanisms going on in there, which are very hard to model. This is a topic of active study by many physicists, uh, uh, many physicist colleagues trying to understand how to actually model what happens inside the plasma, what happens to the exterior of the plasma when the plasma enters into contact with the much colder wall, for example. These are all very complicated uh, physics equations, which all have to go inside this model to make one single simulator, which is so good that then we can use reinforcement learning and just ask the problem, ask, ask the reinforcement learning, please make us the best possible plasma that we can, can. And then it would design the whole tokamak, put the electrical coils in the place they need to be, put all of the other engineering systems around the, the plasma in the way they need to be. And then it would design for us the actual uh, first few fusion uh, re fusion reactor, for example. That's really the ultimate dream. We're very, very far, far from achieving this dream. But th this example of using uh, reinforcement learning for magnetic control is a first step in this direction. So, um, yeah, we're very excited to also to continue this work and see where we can go indeed by bringing, you know, all of the work from the fusion scientists to make the uh, simulation models and understand how plasmas work, bring it together with the computer science aspect and using this powerful technology of artificial intelligence and reinforcement learning. Uh, yeah, to also advance fusion science in this in this way. So that was all I had for today. Thank you for your attention, and I'd be very happy to answer any questions you might have. I have a very brief one. This is amazing research, by the way. This is so cool. One of the questions I have is: is uh, will these techniques work with um, other geometries as well? You've mentioned tokamaks many times. But there's a number of new uh, types of fusion reactor designs. Everyone's coming up with, like, you know, it seems like on a monthly basis now. Will these same general techniques for AI, uh, for being able to drive some of the design or the, the operations components, will they be also be applicable to some of those designs as well? Yeah, I expect that they would be. Um, the problem is always going to be uh, how good is your mo model mm. and uh, and how much space or how much need is there for... Uh, for con control. So I should say, um, I should say that uh, indeed reinforcement learning is particularly good at actually learning control for so-called dynamical systems, so systems that evolve as a function of time and that need need this kind of of uh, this kind of of con control. But in the broader spectrum of artificial intelligence, there's all sorts of methods to solve optimization pro problems. And indeed, I do think that um, machine learning and artificial intelligence uh, in a general way can be used for optimization of many other uh, fusion co concepts. There are a, a few uh, um, uh, in, in, indeed. One of the main issues is that, you know, there are always like fundamental physics laws and fundamental physics reasons why 
a particular configuration might or might not work. But indeed, you can use artificial intelligence if you have sufficient understanding of the, of the underlying physics that you can put the physics into a, a computer using a computer, having a computer model and then using AI to interact with this physics to design the optimal reactor for that particular configuration. So absolutely, I think it can be done, but for many, uh, many approaches, the bottleneck is actually getting the physics models well understood enough and being able to put them in a, in a computer. That's or also for Tokamak, that's incredibly hard to, to do. So that would be, yeah. Uh, yeah, that would be really the bottleneck in many, many situations. I should say also that, you know, artificial intelligence is being used all around the world for many applications, many different engineering applications for further optimiz optimization, exploring alternative configuration, you know, also in all sorts of other engineering systems like pla planes or ships, or I don't know. And in this sense, fusion is no different, exception being that really the, the physics and the models of fusion are, are very, very hard compared to some of these other systems. Very, very cool. Hello, uh, Dr. Federico. Thank you so much. It's um, 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 uh, wonderful to hear. I have a couple of questions. And you mentioned, you already answered uh, the one about the simulation in terms of how it's so dependent, like on the act of research to get that simulation right. Um, how, how many points of data then? I mean, so the assumption one is that the simulation has to be correct, right? And the physics is correct. Um, based on the kind of variables that you, you, you know, you, 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 you're going to use. How many, how many kind of training points then, um, does it take to, for the, for then, you know, the AI to learn, like how many points of data using the simulation does it take? Like yeah, that, that's, that's hard to actually quantify. Um, if you think about, so what it typically did is to run, for example, one simulation, let's say, would be like simulating the uh, stabilization of the plasma for one second. Okay, for technical reasons in our TCV tokamak, we have we can confine plasma for at most two to two and a half seconds. But just to shorten the experiment, we said, okay, let's try to typically we try to do a simulation of stabilizing the plasma for one second. Then uh, to, to do, to do that, you need to do a simulation, which actually runs, I said, the control runs at 10,000 times per second, but the actual simulation runs at 50,000 times per second. And every 50,000 times per second, you get one da data point, which would be like, you know, all of the magnetic measurements, which are about one hundred of, of them. So you have 50,000 times per simulation, you have these 100 numbers, which are the, um, the values of these magnetic measurements at that particular time. Now, let's say you have one simulation, which means that the controller will attempt to do a particular thing during that one simulation. And then to get reinforcement learning to work, you need to do many, many, many of these simulations. I honestly wouldn't know what the number is. It's in the many, many th thousands in pro probably, probably more. Um, so yeah, so you have, you know, you need to uh, run these things on relatively complicated computers also because the simulation is actually uh, relatively s slow to, to, uh, to do. So you need a lot of computation power to do, to do this. And I wouldn't even be able to tell you actually how many individual trials it had to run, but it's many, 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 it's, very many. It's pretty cool. It's time, Check on. Sorry, in terms of time, like how long would it take to like do one kind of yeah, so it depends. It depended a bit on like how many uh, attempts you're doing in parallel and how hard the thing is that you try to do. 
let's say for the for very simple cases and say you're doing 20 cases in 20 uh, you're try trying it with uh, 20 controllers in parallel it looks like a couple of days and if uh, for the more complicated cases um, they had to use many many more um, many mo more of these so-called yeah many do many more of these things in parallel if they did maybe for more complicated cases it was about 5,000 uh, things are being done in parallel and that took like a couple of weeks. So you can imagine this is still takes significant computational power. Now there's many things to in many ways to improve, improve this. And some of these we mentioned in our paper and we want to work on in the future. One of them is of course is to accelerate the actual simulator. So if you get the simulator to work more quickly, then of course this, re this reduces everything. And that's more in the, you know, in the realm of numerical mathematics and improving the the you know from the computational point of view uh, improving this the other is to be able to have algorithms reinforcement learning algorithms which need less data to learn so use the data that they have in a more efficient way and that's also an active area of research more on the reinforcement learning end you mean the, um, optimization? Yeah. the you mean the optimization um aspect of it uh, um Oh, and the other thing, uh, so there's a couple more questions to follow, if, if that's yep. okay. Um, and so, uh, and then, right, so it, it's interesting to, to learn about how much um, training time is required. And then the scoring, right? So um, in terms of the target, how how is that then defined? I mean, like, I'm guessing there's a black box, right, to get to, but then how do you even determine what the target is? Like, uh, the, the stabilization of it, like, how do you determine the stabilization of the plasma is that right like how do you score it so now there are, there are many ways to score it i'll start just with the very easy very simplest one which is the first one that we did so there's three basic quantities that you always need to control in a to even have your tokamak plasma for any interesting length of time so those are the vertical position the radio position and the total plasma current so um these three things so the first thing we did is just to uh, try to get the reinforcement learning agent to learn these three, which just means we just specify, make the Z position, the vertical position be equal to this, the radio position be equal to that, and the plasma current value equal to this. So we specify references or we specify ta targets for all three. And then the score is simply how far you are away from these things, from these quantities, from these references. And of course, because this evolves during time, right? You want to do this for one se second. The score would be something like cumulatively, how long have you been, how far away from these targets? And the further you've been away, the lo lower is your score. So the smaller you make the error, the higher your score. That is the most basic, simple thing. Then you have more complicated things when we actually want to, for example, control the plasma, plasma shape or the X points. Then we specify an, um, you know, some deviation with respect to your references with respect to your targets in a different way. For example, we talked about these X points, these little red crosses in the figure, and we just specify where we want these X points to, to be. For example, if that's something that you really care about, you put that in your score. If you don't necessarily care about where your X point is, then you don't, you don't need to put it in the score. And then the algorithm might find something else to do, which is more optimal in some other way. But for example, if you look at figure two, you see these blue dots. And these blue dots which are kind of surrounding the plasma contour this is the goal so the reward would be keep your plasma boundary as close as possible to these blue dots right this is the this is the re reference is trying to achieve 
and you see, you know, they're almost on top of the black curve because the controller is doing such a good, good jo job. Uh, yeah, that, that's basically the story. I hope that answers your question. It's pretty cool that when you described earlier about the, the time sequence on being able to break down the problem to, you know, it, it's it, you have two seconds and you have 180,000 or 100,000 different discrete moments that you can break that into. It reminds me of some of the other things that DeepMind has tackled uh, earlier where the team was looking at like StarCraft playing. And for them, there you have like 100 actions per minute or something like that. And, you know, a typical game will be like 20 minutes or so, but discreetly when you add it all up, it ends up being about like, you know, 80,000 or 100,000 different discrete moments in the overall state of the game and how they can they can optimize. I'm not sure if they're using the exact approach of the same things, but it's, it's interesting seeing the general uh, uh, philosophy applied there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's an important aspect. So, of course, well, of course while StarCraft is completely different from... Uh, nuclear fusion, they both are in a sense, they both can be treated in kind of the same fra framework. That's the interesting thing, right? It's an environment, your controller or your, your, your agent has to interact with this environment. And there is dynamics in the sense that what you do right now might have an effect in some few, few future, um, right? The decision you make uh, at a certain moment in StarCraft to do something has an effect in you know maybe 10 seconds or in one minute or in two, two minutes or 10 minutes within into the game and similarly if you um if you uh, try to change the current in one of the coils this will take some time before the current is actually changed it doesn't happen instantaneously and then as a function of time the the, the plasma is going to move and it's going to interact with all the other coils and many other things are going to happen so that's where the dynamics of the system uh, is coming in now, an important difference is that, of course, in StarCraft, we should say that the understanding, let's say the StarCraft is, or any other kind of game, there's no difference between the simulation and the actual thing. You're only interacting with something that exists in a computer. So there's no, no issue with like having to learn something in a simulation and then transferring it to something else, which is the actual hardware, the actual system. So I should say, from the reinforcement learning point of view, using reinforcement learning to tackle these kinds of problems, so a real engineering problem, a control problem on a real engineering system with this many inputs and outputs and with these kind of speeds, so like 10,000 actions per second, is also new and also really pushing the frontier of what can be done with reinforcement learning. Dr. Frederica, thank you so much for your amazing presentation. Uh, it's really interesting to see all of the the figures and being able to visualize the plasma flows and things of these nature. Um, I've definitely heard magnetic constrictors uttered by Jordi LaForge on Next Generation more than once. So it's, <laughs> it's really interesting to see that parallel. So I was curious about the said so there was a scaled up version of one of these Takamak reactors. Um, in progress, I was wondering what the ETA on that was and the cost, and then I have several other questions. Yeah, um, so, yeah, so the, uh, first of all, yes, first of all, th thank you for the making this parallel to Star, Star, Star Trek. I, I do also tend to make these kind of parallels in my, occasionally in my day-to-day -day work, not always appreciated in the same way by my co colleagues, but that's what it is. The um, the way um, yeah speaking about e ether, 
it's um yeah so e eater is this new tokamak that's under under construction um it's you know it's a very big science pro project it's really one of the most complicated science uh, science prop project that as humanity we have ever attempted i wouldn't be able to tell you actually the exact cost but it's in the tens of billion and uh, the eta is currently uh, to have the first pl plasma i don't even know the official schedule at this point but like certainly within the next five five ye years so it's uh, well well on well on track track to uh, finishing the construction. My understanding is that it's now 75% complete, I think. If you go on eater.org, you'll find all the information and all the status of the construction. Um, and I mean, they're really at the stage now where they're starting to really assemble all of the different components. But just to stress, it's really a big science uh, science pro project and an incredibly complex machine that we're trying to, to, ma 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 to, to make. Just to, to, to fra frame this even more, the uh, magnetic coils that we use on TCV. So TCV has a, a size of like the whole thing is maybe two and a half meters uh, uh, across, let's say the whole, the whole uh, device is approximately two and a half meters across. Uh, ether is like tw 25 meters across. So it's much, much uh, bigger. And the magnetic coils that we use are made out of copper, right? Which is kind of, easy to de deal with the coils in ether for various reasons, particularly to keep the plasmas confined for a long time. Ether will aim to confine it for 300 seconds. Uh, that needs your coils to be super conducting, which means that the coils have to be inside the cryostat and have to be cooled to very low temperatures to make, to put the magnets in a superconducting state. So you have somewhere superconducting magnets at very low temperature. And then just a few meters from there, you'll have this incredibly high temperature burning plasma at 100 million degrees. So the engineering challenges of that are just mind, mind blow, blowing, as you understand. And there's, a, of course, also the associated cost. So I can assume um, the why it's called Ether, but is it's linked to like the actual stuff? Jamie, you had a question? Sorry, I didn't sorry about that. I was fixing wrestling with the, the mute button there. Sorry about that. Um, thank you very, very much for this uh, talk, Doctor. It's absolutely fascinating. Um, and I'm going to ask a, a kind of basic question. So forgive me if it's a bit uh, simple. But um, I was wondering um, when you were talking about the different shapes of the plasma, like um, you know the, the snowflake configuration and stuff. Um, why exactly is that like important? Is it because of the complexity of what it takes to control it, or does like a star, does like a snowflake shape do something that like a elongated one doesn't? I, I'm a little bit yeah. unsure of that. No, no, that's a, that's a very very good question, and indeed the detailed reasons are very hard to understand. They have to do with complicated physics phenomena, like why the like the way the particles in the plasma move around in a given. A magnetic field and what what happens exactly and what kind of uh, instabilities occur. Um, so the fundamental reason is indeed hard to understand. Maybe one which is interesting is like why we care about where these X points are, for for example. Why we care about these X points and you see like in Figure three uh, B, no, uh, yeah, Figure four three B and three D, for example. You see that there's this number of legs 
right? This uh, um, snow snowflake, for example, that's that's number D. So in these, the point is that what happens with these, uh, so what happens with these X points and with these legs in particular defines like if some of the the heat and some of the particles escape from the pla plasma, where do they go? So now they tend to preferentially follow the magnetic field, which means that they will follow these legs. And that's a very good and very important thing because it means that then we can decide where the majority of the flow of the plasma coming out of the device, where it will interact with the reactor wall. And there maybe we can put some cooling or we can put some, uh, other, uh, some other, other devices and take some other measures to make sure that this power, this heat flux coming out of the plasma is handled in a proper way. So that's one reason why we care about the plasma, plasma sh sh shape. And really it's a topic of active research. Like for example, the number three C, that's what we call negative triangular triangularity because it's shaped like a triangle, but the opposite end of what one would normally do, right? B is kind of closer to what you would normally do. So C is negative triangularity, so opposite triangularity and actually only, um, only very recently, this research has gained really a lot and lots of new uh, momentum because people are finding out that this negative triangularity for complicated uh, re reasons, which we partly understand and partly we're still trying to understand, actually has a much better confinement so can give you a higher pre pressure than the ones with the D shape in the opposite di direction. So it's really a very good question and the answer is incredibly uh, complex. And I think we also don't know all the answers yet. And that's exactly why in Tokamax like TCV, we try to make plasmas in all these different varying shapes and uh, yeah, and to understand what they do. Uh, I think I see. So in, in experimenting with the shapes, it's essentially experimenting with how much you can control this plasma, which means you can then in future build machines or, or, or systems around that to maximize its potential, yeah? Yeah, it's, it's like that. Well, there's two aspects. One of them is deciding what kind of shape you actually want, which means which shape is optimal, which shape will give you the highest performance in terms of the highest fusion power, the highest pressure and so forth. And the other aspect is, if even if you design a shape that is optimal, can you actually control, control it? So can you actually have the successful feed, feedback controllers which will stabilize your plasma in, that, um, in that, that, that position? And then actually the third step is to actually then to design these control controllers. That is fascinating. Thank you so much for your talk and thank you for answering my questions. Quickly, um, coming to the top of the hour, I wanted to check in with you, um, see how much more time you had left. Uh, for me, it's okay. As long as there are, uh, there are questions, I'm happy to stick around. Perfect. Fantastic. But don't leave an open end for us. I don't want to stay here alone. <laughs> <laughs> like for 24 hours <laughs> but yeah no. <laughs> let's, uh, let, uh, let, let's see let's say another <laughs> yeah let's see let's take another half an hour and then, can, then, then we'll see <laughs> okay um, thank you so uh, i have two questions and then we'll do mic flashing to see whoever else has questions please flash your mics now so that we can establish the order Okay, no mic flashes for now. We can do that again after I'm done. Uh, oh, Jamie, okay. Um, so I was curious about if you had considered rather than a single chamber for the plasma, several chambers, and also 
in the experiment where there were two plasma streams, were they of different composition? Yeah, so uh, first of all, no. So the two uh, ones would not have a different composition. They were kind of the same. Now having the two different uh, chambers, maybe I should explain. So the fact of having these two separate plasmas is very interesting from the control point of view, but the ultimate goal is to actually bring these plasmas together in a controlled way. That's the ultimate goal. We, we didn't do this so far. We didn't achieve this with these uh, with uh, controllers so far. It's something that we may want to work on more uh, in the in the few, few, few future. Uh, but yes, actually, uh, in the 1970s, people experimented uh, in the United States in particular, people experimented extensively with uh, tokamak reactors, which had a sh shape in which it was easier to have these two plasmas separately and then bring them closer to get together in, in some in so, some way. So this was already studied extensively uh, in the 19 uh, in the 1970s to the extent that they could at the at the time, of course, with all the technology that existed then. And actually, we would be interested to try this again uh, in TCV to have these two plasmas and bring them slowly together because we think that there might be some interesting advantages uh advantages there so now with more modern control equipment and more uh, modern also equipment to take measurements from the plasma we are really uh, interested in studying those again um r related question um is it um convenient uh, or is it possible to get um something like a stream or a beam coming off the plasma along one of the legs um, well, you could, and that's in practice, that's what actually happens in the sense that the pictures you're seeing in the figure, they are highly, um, let's say, highly idealistic, where all of the plasma is confined within this black thing. In reality, there's all sorts of plasma coming out all, all the time. Actually, I might just share a link, maybe, where you can actually see uh, what is happening. Uh, just one minute while I look for it. Right, I have a link. Now let's see if I can find out how do I share this. Um, if you click on the chat uh, button ah, on yeah, the left, yeah, there you can share with the room. Right, yep. I shared it in the chat. Chat. That's actually yeah. That's actually really a really not nice picture that one of my uh, my colleagues from EPFL took. Um, took very recently well he, he wasn't actually standing behind the ca camera okay when we actually make the plasmas nobody can be in the experimental hall but he uh yeah we have some camera systems which take pictures of how this plasma inside the tc tokamak actually looks and that's the way it actually looks so you see this vague uh pur purple um uh, ha haze that you see around the the around, around the the pl plasma you see actually that some of the plasma is exiting somehow and then some of it is going higher, like it's becoming blue and is ending up interacting with the wall at some, some po point. So this is what the way an actual plasma looks. And the reason it has different colors is because depending on the various temperatures that exist in various places in the reactor, and depending on, for example, what kind of materials are, are there, you can get completely different, uh, different colors and see different things. Maybe another interesting thing to point out in this figure is that you can't actually see the plasma core because the core of the plasma, which is the hottest and has the highest density, is so hot that it doesn't emit any light in the visible spe spectrum. So a normal camera cannot see it. 
it's emitting mostly uh, in the X-ray uh, frequencies, let's say. So then if we have lots of X-ray cameras, which actually are able to see these, and then we can tell interesting things and see interesting things about what is happening inside the plasma, you have to really look at, uh, at it uh, in the X-ray spectrum to see anything. I hope everybody can see, see the link. If you haven't clicked yet, I highly recommend you do. Because it's really a, a really fantastic picture to bring it kind of from the from the kind of conceptual schematic drawings that we show in the yeah in the in the actual paper to see how it how one of these things actually looks. Thank you so much. I'd like to do a quick room reset and welcome all the friends who are here joining us to listen to Dr. Felici discussing his work in nuclear fusion in the tokamak configuration. We, we, um, we're grateful, Doctor, that you are giving us another 28 minutes of your time. It's, we are really so looking forward to this time with you. So if anyone has a question um, and that you would like to ask, then please flash your mics so that we can help uh, make sure that everyone who's on stage is able to ask a question. And welcome to new friends, um, Eli, Ryan, and Eric, and Dr. Shaw, who have just come up. So who would like to go next? And let's see a mic flash. All right. Well, so, so um, I'd like to thank Federico for that answer and uh, ask a follow-up. Um, from from what you know about this, um, is there any way to selectively bleed off um, specific ranges of particle energies um, from the plasmas? Um, you know, say in those in those legs. Um, so maybe uh, could you say like what kind of applications are you thinking of? Like, why would you want? To do that well I, because in principle the idea is to try try to keep as much of the plasma confined as you can because we want the fusion plasma to be as, as hot as we possibly can so ideally we wouldn't want to leak anything something unavoidably leaks and then usually we want to leak as little as we can because whatever we leak we need to then you know the de deal with it by having materials on the on the floor of the reactor for example that can actually stand this or to have like cool 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 cooling to actually cool the material wall for for example yeah so so i was thinking about this more kind of as 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 a reservoir uh for for uh um plasma for uh, a, a reactor that's in a different uh, vessel um colliding beam uh like 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 that um uh i suspect for like no i i no in yeah, I, I think I understand what you're saying. I mean, typically it's incredibly hard to do what to to like make make your fusion plasma even as hot as you as you can. Sorry, just to understand, are you thinking about colliding beams to achieve nu nuclear nuclear fusion, or are you thinking of yeah. something completely yeah. different? Okay, maybe speaking of beams that that uh, uh, collide, it's actually been understood for a long time and in the uh, physics classes when you start your PhD in nuclear fusion, they explain it actually for very well understood reasons it's not possible to make nuclear fusion just by having plasma particles collide with each other he head on. I mean, you are going to have some amounts of nuclear fu fusion, some fusion reactions will occur, but the energy that you would lose just because of all the other things happening, all the other just 
there is collisions between the ions which don't necessarily produce any kind of nuclear fusion reactor will always be higher uh, and they don't produce a nuclear fusion re reaction, pardon me. They will also, this, this loss will always be higher than uh, whatever you would gain from fu fusion uh, reactions. So indeed, when they began with nuclear fusion, they studied like if you have two beams of plasma, you make them hit each other, would you achieve nuclear fusion? And the answer is unfortunately no, otherwise we wouldn't be still trying this research for uh, since, you know, since the 1960s. And um, uh, no, we find that really the only way to do this is to have, uh, at least in the magnetic confinement world, what we understand is the only way to do this is to do it in a so-called thermal pla pla plasma. A thermal plasma means that all, the, uh, all of the particles are kind of moving around in more or less random, random directions. And Basically, the average of their speeds, of their velocities, is what is this high te temperature. That's the way to see it. So they all need to be moving around in many, many different, uh, uh, different directions. And the vast majority of the time when they are close to actually colliding with each other, they are not going to make an actual fusion, re fusion reaction. This happens very, very rarely which is why you need this plasma to be around for a sufficiently long time. And all the particles have many opportunities to collide with each other many, many uh, times, many occasions, so that once in a while you may get one few fusion, uh, fusion reaction out of this. And then there's billions and hundreds and billions of billions of billions of these particles. So then in the end, the number of fusion reactions that you get is very, very, uh, is very, very high. And then you get the net positive energy. So I hope that answers your, your question and gives a bit more perspective on why we want to do nuclear fusion in this particular way. Yes, thanks. Hey, um, Jake, go ahead. Uh, please go ahead with your questions and Armish, Al and Hansen. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Um, my question is the chamber, the chamber shape. Is the chamber shape a variable? Uh, does the AI um, take the chamber shape in, into um, consideration and can it suggest different chamber shapes? Yeah, so with the work we did right now, we took the chamber shape of the TCV tokamak and we took all of the magnetic coil positions from the TCV tokamak because that's the one we were going to try the experiment on. So, so far, no, but indeed one of the potential future applications of this might be to also use uh, AI to at the same time optimize this vessel, uh, vessel shape and not only the vessel shape, also the location of the coils and all sorts of other engineering systems you need to put around the tokamak um, to also optimize this at the same time as the control. But this we haven't done yet. So in the cases you saw now, the vessel and the TCV, the configuration of the tokamak was fixed. That's awesome. Thanks. And just one other question. How do you know when a fusion reaction has started? Well, it's actually, first of all, fusion reactions are happening the whole time, even in a relatively small device like TCV. Fusion reactions happen all the time. And the easiest way to measure this is by looking at the, at um, looking for new neutrons. So each fusion reaction, in particular in the TCV tokamak, I won't go into details, but in the TCV tokamak, the fusion reaction is between two atoms of deuterium, typically, sorry, two 
two ions of deuterium, and then the fusion reaction creates one uh, new neutron, amongst other things, it creates one neutron, which is not electrically charged. So it just escapes the magnetic field and it goes because it's so highly energetic, it just goes straight through everything, straight through the uh, walls of the reactor. And then you can put a neutron detector there and you can actually me measure this. So we do have uh, neutron detectors also in the TCB tokamak and we measure every day what these, uh, what these new neutrons are. So we know that fusion reactions are always, uh, always going on. And as I said, this is a matter of statistics. So the ions and the ions and electrons are just floating around all the time. They're colliding with each other all the time. And occasionally one of these, uh, a few of these collisions, well, a few, I mean, we're still talking like billions and billions of fusion reactions every second in a small device like the TCV. But still we see that this is by far not enough to actually get more, uh, more power from these fusion reactions. So these neutrons coming out by far don't have the same amount of power as the power that we had to put into the tokamak to actually heat the plasma to these kind of te temperatures. So it's rather a question of getting your your um, plasma conditions with higher pressure and higher confinement time so that the number of fusion reactions per second increases even more. And then you, uh, until you get to the point where you get a net positive uh, energy. Maybe one more point related to this is that actually just a couple of uh, weeks ago also around early February, there was a big, uh, a big announcement of a new, um, of yeah, of new, new, uh, a new exciting result from the existing biggest tokamak in the world, which is called Jet. It's in the UK, and this tokamak, which is a lot bigger also than TCV, um, maybe something like ten meters across for the whole thing. Um, that is. Uh, yeah, then they saw that they actually bro broke the world record of how much fusion energy they were able to actually produce during one day discharge. They broke the world record. I don't remember by heart the actual number, but they maintained a significant amount of fusion, uh, fusion reactions for, I think, five seconds, which is very significant. And within the te technical capabilities of what that document can do, it's a very, um, very impressive achievement. And indeed, there, the amount of fusion reactions is primarily measured by measuring the new, new, new neutrons. So if you're interested in that, uh, absolutely go look it up. It's really fascinating. It's really, uh, say, the, the, the cu cutting edge of what we can do in the reactors that we have now, that we have today. If you look it up, yeah. So it's the JET tokamak in Oxford, and uh, it's a European tokamak, and that just achieved the world record if you look it up. On Google, you should be able to uh, to find all sorts of information about that too. That's great. Thanks. Please uh, flash your mic so we can see who else has a question. And um, all right, great. I see Arnish has a question. Go ahead. Yeah. Or, thank um, you, uh, Federico. Federico, my question is: What's the reward function? they used in the reinforcement learning AI in the chamber. Uh, and is it just maximizing the number of throughputs, number of fusion reaction per uh, cubic, or let's say per unit of two, two atoms? And the second question is uh, the, the output which you would have gotten, uh, the, the set of settings which you have gotten for a nuclear uh, 
reactor can it also be uh, varied in a way that a small level a, a smaller local level fusion can also happen because if you have a simulation result for high throughput you can also have a, a controlled uh, low throughput condition so that even uh, with less resources these controlled fusion can can happen or is there a minimal threshold yeah so to answer your first uh, your first question thank you for your correct question to answer the first question um so we again we only did here the so-called magnetic control so the goal was not to optimize the amount of fusion reactors it was only to uh, let's say try to keep the plasma exactly where we want it to be so the goal was we basically prescribed where do we want our plasma to be in the in the reactor and the reward function was related to how far are you from what we are asking or from what we need and as i said uh, the, the the new new work in the future we hope will also focus on asking exactly the question you're saying so to try to get the reward function just to be maximize the amount of fusion reactions and then give the um, controller freedom as to how to achieve this and unfortunately the problem is that we we need to uh, for that we need to have actually a higher accuracy simulator which also includes the effect of the internal dynamics of the internal plasma pressure the simulation of the amount of fusion reactions for example and which is in the current model that we use is not is not not there there exists in the fusion community there exist models which can do this so exist models which can simulate how many fusion reactions you have so indeed we look forward to also trying uh, these kind of um, approaches on directly on controlling the fusion reaction rate for example uh, to answer your second question, so yeah, we would all like to have tokamaks that are really, really small and to make fusion reactors that are really small. Unfortunately, one but the understand of the of the physics tells us that that's just not something that works. Um, we've understood that the way to make tokamaks work in the sense that to make them make more power than they uh, and you have to put put that you have to put put in so to make them work as actual electricity producing power plants. We need to either make them bigger or increase the value of the magnetic field, increase the strength of the magnetic field, which increases the strength of this magnetic cage um, so that you can get a higher magnetic, a higher plasma pressure for the same size. Now, um, this we have understood for a, a long time. So indeed, there are two different approaches, or two different avenues you can go. One of them is to try to increase the magnetic field, which means using more advanced superconducting magnets. And the other is to try to increase the size. So both of these things are being um, are being explored. And ITER, in the sense, is both an increase in the magnetic field compared to the most existing devices. Some already had stronger fields, but compared to many devices, it's a step up in magnetic field, and it's a big step up in size. There are other avenues and other organizations trying to instead make fusion um, reactors relatively small and increase the magnetic field. But by small, I still mean, you know, it's very significant, uh, um, uh, very significant engineering equipment of the orders of, I mean, I don't think there's any design of a fusion reactor, which is less than, let's say, 10 meters or, or, or so, probably more, uh, probably, yeah, between 10 and 20 or, or something, if you're, if you're lucky. And so yeah, so this is just from the fundamental, there's a fundamental reason for this in, in Tokamaks, which you kind of understand, but maybe the easiest way to understand it is if you imagine that, you know, 
when you want to get fusion reactions, what matters is the plasma volume, right? And the plasma vo volume scales with the, the size of the device to the power th three, more, more, more or less. I'm sim simplifying things. Now, while the, um, while what you care about in terms of how much energy you would lose, this depends on the sur surface of the, of the device. And the surface scales like the size square, squared. So you can see that the ra ratio between how many fusion reactions you're going to uh, produce, which goes like R cubed, and the losses you're going to have, which goes like R squared, how that ratio becomes more favorable if R becomes bigger, so if the size of the device becomes bigger. So that's fundamentally one of the reasons. That's not the only re reason. There's many more fundamental physics reasons, which I don't, won't have the time to explain today. But we already know that you know your fault pocket size, the tokamak or a tokamak that can fit in your car uh, or in a truck, truck is just not something we, we, can, we can do. Uh, I know that some people have tried to ex explore also completely other uh, concepts uh, to really make small fusion, uh, sm much smaller fusion reactor, reactors. But so far, uh, as, I, as far as I can see, there's no real credible way to, to do, to do the, this. And I would say the most advanced uh, and most most credible solutions, meaning they have been explored in experiments and they are giving good results on the way towards having a, a, a reactor, which gives a positive net energy are really the magnetic confinement fusion. And then there's two main branches, the tokamaks, which I talked about a lot, and the stellarators, which use three-dimensional magnetic coils to confine the plasma, but they're still magnetic confinement. Um, uh, yeah. and um, and perhaps, but but personally, I think that's a bit, a bit of a bit bigger bigger step 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 is the uh, fusion based on so-called inertial confinement, which means that you fire a whole lot of la lasers at a very small uh, ball, basically of the fusion fuel, and then that basically compresses the fuel very strongly, and you get locally extremely high heat, and that's another way to make fusion reactors happen. Also, these are very very big, so all these installations are really big and so far we haven't really found a way to make a, a viable fusion reactor concept that is small however much we would uh, like like that um, well haven't the uh, stellarator designs introduced geometry that makes it more complex and um sorry i have a question regarding the magnets um i don't know if you saw uh this a paper probably you know about um uh, generating a mega tesla magnetic fields by intense laser-driven microtube implosions uh, that was then in, in Japan. Um, are, you, are you using that technology basically to create um, this very strong magnets that are comparable to uh, basically a black hole type of uh, force? Or are you planning on, like, is this useful? Would this be useful for, in your context? That's uh, an interesting question. I'm personally not familiar with this uh, with this work. When you speak about me mega Tesla magnetic fields, indeed, that's that's uh, yeah, that's in a completely different world with what we do. We typically have in uh, tokamaks between, let's say, one and ten te te Tesla, typically, which is already a very strong magnetic field. It's very very strong compared to the Earth magnetic field, compared to you know the little magnets that you can buy put on your whiteboard. Um, but me mega Tesla is something else. I'd never heard of it. 
but I, I guess that the actual volume in which these mega Teslas exist is probably very, very, very small, small. Oh, um, yeah, I posted so, to the paper in the chat if you want to. It's a nature paper okay. and it says it uses ultra intense laser pulses to produce ultra high magnetic fields. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, yeah, I, 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 I'll have a look, but I, I mean, at first sight, I would guess that the, the really the vol volumes are very small. So probably oh. it will not be, be practical in this sense. And also the issue with fusion is not, not exclusively to have an incredibly high magnetic field. There are many ways to make maybe even much stronger magnetic field. The problem is you have to maintain this magnetic field for a long, long time. You have to maintain this over several mi minutes uh, to, you know, up to an hour and poss possibly even in steady state, possibly even maintain these fields continuously. Uh, so I, I, yeah, I think that will be very hard to do with the kind of techniques that you described now. And also, of course, the vol volume of the plasma has to be uh, very significant. So probably the, the, if we we're talking about these, yeah, firing in very intense lasers, it's probably for a very short time and in a very small space. But nevertheless, I will have a look at your at the paper. It's very interesting. Thank you. Thank you, Federico. I have a quick quick follow up. Uh, so the uh, the the trade off between R square and R cube uh, did uh, did the DeepMind algorithm help you optimize that, or it it remained the same in this in the similar range? So it's more. So my question is: it is it more like an engineering problem, or or does AI or reinforcement learning or any technique can help you optimize? has already yeah oh. no i mean i should say that these things about r squared and r cube this is just you know very fun fundamental and well understood just from the basic physics equation which uh explain how you know how these kind of systems how the kind of fusion reactors work and ultimately even if you have perfect con control troll you can only do what the actual physics of the reactor will allow you to do so even if you have the perfect AI and the perfect reinforcement learning control roller, there is still, you know, you're still fundamentally limited by what the actual uh, physics is of the system and how much heat loss you're going to have, how many fusion reactions you're going to have. That's not just a matter of good control. It's a matter of, uh, do, can you make the actual conditions inside the reactor which support these kind of, um, these kind of high, high enough pressures and temperatures? And fundamentally that is, so basically the goal of control is to try to make sure that the only constraint you have is the fundamental physics of the underlying pro problem, of the underlying equations of how the transport of heat happens and how the, uh, trans how the heat distributes itself and how the fusion reactors are created. If you do a poor job at control, then you're actually constrained by the fact that, you know, your plasma is not well controlled. It's uh, maybe interacting with the wall too much. It's cooling down too much. And then you're constrained by more by these engineering things. Now, that being said, there is a, a lot of space, for example, for AI to answer a slightly different question, which is say, say that I have made my fusion reactors of a given size and say that I know how much heat, uh, sorry, say that I know that in principle it's big enough so that the power you put in is lower than what you get, are get, getting out. So in principle, you can get net positive energy, for example. Then you can ask your AI or any optimization algorithm, and maybe AI is one one of as is one possible solution. You can ask them what kind of so what is the way I should uh, control my 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 plasma in order for the pressure to be as high as I can. So within 
all the possible things you could do in that in that fusion reactor. What is the best way to control it to up to get the highest possible pressure and the highest possible possible uh, performance within the constraints of the actual physics. So I hope that clarifies and answers your question. Yeah, that's absolutely clarifying. And in fact, they can bring a lot of transparencies here. I hope these research by DeepMind is all pub, uh, becomes open source. And uh, people, when, when they make it transparent, people might uh, get rid of their fear about all of this nuclear energy thing. So, so I uh, just getting. Um, I'll have a question first. Uh, I'll go ahead. Uh, thank you, and thank you, Doctor, for your for your time. Um, I had a couple questions. Uh, the first one being, um, once you and DeepMind generated the ML model, can you speak to the computer specifications that were able to run the neural network and manage the feedback control? Yeah, so that's a very interesting, uh, interesting question. So we were severely constrained actually in the computational power that we could use in the real-time control experiment. Because again, this has to run at 10,000 times per second. So it's very fast. So there's not a lot of calculations you can do in that amount of time. So the um, neural network had to be relatively small. It's in the paper, but it's a so-called multi-layer perceptron with three layers and up to a couple of hundred neurons, I think. Uh, in the actual, yeah, in, in this in this neural network. So this part is relatively easy and relatively si simple, and that then ran on a completely standard modern-day CPU on one thre thread, so nothing sp uh, special. But we wanted it to be small because we wanted to run it on just one CPU. Now, the interesting part, and it's explained in the paper, but I'm happy to explain more here. The interesting part is that um, the, the reinforcement learning method that was used is so-called actor critic method. And that's a very interesting way of, of, of look, looking at these kind of reinforcement learning, uh, learning problems, because basically the actor is the controller, right? The actor is the one which receives the measurements from the tokamak and acts on the actual uh, electrical co coils, while the, um, and the critic is something else, is a completely different system, which basically is receiving all sorts of extra information from the simulation. For example, the actor can only see the magnetic measurement because that's what it's going to see in real time when it's going to run the control. But when it's, when, and when it's learning, it's also only seeing the control. But then the critic is receiving all sorts of other information about like the internal state of the simulation, what is the current in the coils, where is the plasma, what does the shape of the plasma look like, all sorts of things which the actor just doesn't know, will ne never see. So the critic has access to this kind of special information and the, then the, the critic is then basically trying to tell the uh, actor the way it should behave and is the one that is actually rewarding the actor for uh, doing things correctly or incorrectly. In, in so the point is that this critic that is a much more complicated thing that has a dynamical neural network. It has recurrency. It's much, much bigger and much more complicated than the actor, which was small. And that part is the only one that which needed to actually run in real time on the actual machine after the, after the training. Well, in the training itself, we could afford to have this very big neural network to, but only for the critic part in this actor critic setup. Yes, thank you. And also something that I'm seeing from your research is um, to control the plasma, 
um, it seems like it wasn't enough to just um, maintain a constant magnetic field. Um, is that because of maybe some unaccounted for anomalies that typically happen within the plasma during reaction? Yeah, so indeed one of the one of the issues, well, there's there's a few different things. So indeed, the the uh, what there's a, there are many fundamental reasons why in a tokamak you need to kind of continuously adjust the currents in the coil to make your tokamak plasma stay where you want it to be and to drive the electrical current in particular. Um, there's many reasons, and also because of this, the fact that it's fundamentally an unstable system, you always need to be feedback controlling it. It's like an you know, unstable system is like you know an inverted pe pendulum. Um, for example, or like the famous ball on a on a stick that you're trying to hold straight up, there are always disturbances. So there's always there's always like noise, and there is all sorts of things happening inside the plasma, which slightly perturb the plasma every once in a while. So your feedback controller needs to actively be controlling the coil currents, and they are moving all the time because of that. Thank you. And but my last question is: Are there any plans for you to include your research? Or for your research to be included in the design of ITER? Um, that's a good question. At this stage, uh, well, not because the design of ITER is actually fixed. We, they've already decided how they're going to do it. And uh, ITER, most of the components have already been manufactured. And it's already only in an assembly uh, stage. Now, we do hope that our research will be used to help or assist the design of the reactors which may be designed and may be constructed in the few future. So that's something that, yeah, we're certainly interested in. And uh, we hope, I personally hope that this will, uh, this will have a, there will be a, um, yeah, that there will be a good possibility for, for the, this too. But for ITER, things are now fixed and we already know how it's going to, uh, to, I mean, the design is already fixed. And that being said, there is probably, maybe there might still see be some space to actually optimize this link to the earlier question to optimize how we actually operate ITER. So how we do the control, what kind of uh, what kind of plasmas you want to make, you know, with the control knobs that we have in ITER, in particular related to the he heating, for example, when and how do you heat the plasma, when and how do you fuel the, the plasma. And there, there is a lot of space for optimization. So opt optimizing exactly the way we're going to do this. There's already now some pre pretty good, good ideas about how we w want to uh, operate ether ether plasmas, right? That's what the design was was based on. But it would be interesting to explore if you can optimize this uh, further using these kind of te techniques. Though again, I should say, we're in the end we're going to be somehow fundamentally constrained by the actual physics of the of the of the device. So a lot of it we will still have to see. Yes, thank you. I hope to see your research in there as well. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, handsome. Uh, this is, thank you, uh, Frederick. Though this is uh, fantastic research, um, I have uh, uh, several questions. Uh, actually, I want to ask this uh, first. The uh, are you going to publish the uh, detailed um, setup and 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 the uh, uh, mathematical derivations and all the details uh, in a say separate? Um, uh, Paper or 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 this is it. The, yeah, uh, so this is also linked to the question. Sorry, the earlier speaker was was asking. So everything we do is basically available, in the sense that the equations of the actual um, of the actual simulator we use are in a, a 
in a do document that's actually a PhD thesis of one of our students um, at EPFL. And um, that is freely available. So the equations for how for the fusion for the safe simulator are all are all in in there. And of course, there are. This is not something which came out of the blue. Um, you know, simulators for magnetic uh, confinement simulation have existed for many many years and many many uh, decades. Even people, there's many doc publications explaining all these things in some detail and also books. And the part about the reinforcement learning control. Um, yeah, it's a the specific implementation of how, you know, the people at DeepMind actually ran their specific experiments on their computers is not uh, open source, but the fundal, fundamental algorithm of how uh, this reinforcement learning was done, what kind of optimization algorithms were used, and all of that theory is, is available, including all the equations, and including, I think, even an open source implementation of the particular algorithm that was, that was used. So um, really, from that point of view, we make uh, maximum effort to make these kind of things available also to the general, general public and to others who want to also reproduce our work. Uh, so, so is there uh, already a reference or it's in, in the process? The, I'm sorry, I didn't the, hear. I think the microphone broke. Can you uh, repeat the question, please? Can, can you hear me? Can you hear me now? Yes, I can now. Uh, okay, so is there is the reference already uh, prepared, or I mean, is the is the ready ready made uh, reference, or is it is it in the process of uh, being published? Uh, th those uh, detailed. Um, no, all these things I mentioned have already been been published, but they're not published in one in one one single place. So there are many references in the in the in the paper, and all of the details about, for example, how the simulator works are in one of the references which is referenced uh, in the in the uh, in the in the in the paper oh, and all okay. the details of how the reinforcement learning works are also in a reference in the in the paper if you want i can be specific as to where they are like for example the magnetic uh, reinforce sorry the reinforcement learning or the magnetic controller the magnetic simulator for example is in reference number 22 which is also freely available uh, online, if you want to have a look, we we don't plan another publication to explain all of the details because the details already exist. They're all in the references. Oh, I see. Okay, great. Um, because uh, I think the, uh, the previously the uh, deep uh, deep mind uh, say that uh, when they did the AlphaGo AlphaZero, they published uh, kind of a different uh, either as a kind of a, a very long. Uh, the uh, supplemental information or, or another paper or like the um, alpha fold. Uh, so just yeah. wondering if the, yeah. Uh, so, okay. No, so it's, it's a good question. I mean, in our case, the paper in, in the, our paper that we have in nature includes both the ma main part and also the sub supplementary material where a lot of the technical de detail details are, but we don't have any uh, specific plans for a follow-up publication on this particular work. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Uh, so the uh, uh, so these uh, another follow-up question is uh, the uh, these designs uh, the neural nets uh, are they like uh, uh, say convolutional or L, uh, the LSTM or uh, or is it uh, uh, say Monte Carlo tree search uh, as in uh, AlphaGo the uh, I suppose that the uh, this is a dynamic uh, kind of a feedback control and then uh, you have to uh, do it uh, uh, at different time points. Uh, so, 
Uh, I suppose that these are all in the in the uh, yeah. supplemental. I, I had to, had to very free. quickly look it up. Sorry, I had to also look it up quickly in the paper because I also don't remember all the details. But as I said, the, the, create, the neural network that does the control, so the actor is a simple multi-layer uh, multi-layer process step drawn with, uh, yeah, like uh, number of inputs equal to number of measurements, so about 100, and then I think three layers of 256 uh, outputs. That's the feed-forward multi-layer process step drawn. And then the more complicated network used for the critic is mostly based on LSTMs as a first layer, and then, uh, or as one of the layers, and then uh, fed to a multi-layer step drawn. Uh, again, so that part that part is more complicated, and that the LSTMs allow, of course, all of the dy dynamics. So, so the uh, the critic uh, isn't that uh, would be just uh, basically solving the uh, uh, the uh, uh, Maxwell's equations and then thermodynamics dynamics and um, uh, or uh, fluid dynamics uh, all combined together. Um, the of course it's uh, nonlinear, uh, but uh, I would think uh, isn't that uh, just solve. I mean, given the control and um, the uh, uh, or the, uh, the the plasma and then uh, uh, yeah, and and then solving these uh, you know the uh, fusion process and and kind of forward uh, forward problem is that correct? Well, not not exactly because we don't tell the critic to exactly solve any kind of of equation explicitly. What the critic is trying to do in reinforcement learning, um, and here I hope I don't say anything wrong because again I'm more of an expert in the in the fusion control, and I had to learn all the reinforcement learning part much more recently. As I understand it, the main thing that the that the critic is doing is learn the so-called value fu function, which just means given the the a action that I'm going to take. Now, now, at a given point in time, say assuming knowledge of the system's uh, state, or so let's say g given the me measurements I have now, and assuming a certain a action, how what kind of score I'm going to actually get. So the only thing it needs to learn is this kind of mapping between its actions and the expected sco score. Now internally, it will probably learn some kind of representation of you know, all the dynamics that's going on in the plasma and how this translates in the end into a score. But this to us is completely obscure. We don't know what is happening. We do, or don't tell it to solve any, any equations, any physics equations. It's probably not solving any physics equations. It's just learn this mapping. That's all that it needs to do, to learn this mapping as to how well, if I, I'm in a certain state, if I have given certain me measurements and I take a given action, meaning I apply this voltage to the coils, how good is my score in the future going to, to be? That's all it needs to learn. And that's why it's like this big black, black box neural network. We don't know exactly how it does it, but somehow it apparently it is learning the correct thing because the agent's actions are correct in the end. Oh, I see. Thank you so much, Dr. So Felici. And thank you very much for being here again, Hanson. Uh, doctor, I want to respect your time. Um, you told us that you were giving us an extra half hour and here we are. Uh, 40 minutes now. So I want to make sure that friends who have come, I see that we have Eric who's still on stage. And then after that, doctor, I'd like to let you make your closing statements. Thank and you. Yes. Thank you so much for coming. And um, friends, please come back again to Science Society. This room is only as special and wonderful as it is because each of you are here. And we feel so grateful that we were able 
to present a really active and full room and stage for our speaker today. So, Eric, I believe you have a question? Yeah, so I had a question about the material science, because oftentimes these engineering problems are limited by the technology of their time. And there's like there's been some advances with uh, metamaterials and, and uh, I guess some other alloys and things like that. Do you see anything uh, coming up on the horizon that might significantly change uh, the geometry or configuration of the physical setup? So you get the, the tokamak and the stellarator. Perhaps there's a, another design that could emerge that could combine the two. Um, that's, that's kind of my question. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for your question. So first of all, I should say, uh, yeah, I, I will try to answer your question, but it's really quite uh, far away from my specific domain, which is really on the control of the of the of these tokamak. I'll try to give an answer based on what I know and what I hear from my various uh, co colleagues in the in the field. So indeed, there is a lot of importance and a lot of research going around uh, materials, and there's a number of indeed possibly possibly en enabling technologies in the materials field for uh, for few, few fusion one of them and the most obvious one is everything surrounding high temperature superconducting uh, co coils right we need to make high magnetic fields and we need the coils to make them we need very strong uh, co coils that can do this and withstand the strong forces that you get with these high magnetic fields and we want them to be high temperature superconductors so that we don't have to have such a complicated crack rheostat we don't need to cool it to such high temperatures so everything related to material science for uh, high temperature superconductors is one of the areas where these kind of things can can improve or where material science and you know physics of superconductors can play an important role another one is the um, everything involving materials uh, in the so-called diverter the diverter was the area i was talking about earlier where all the plasma exhaust end up being uh, put right where the hot particles from the plasma are interacting with the walls of the of the uh, of the of the re reactor, and there there's a lot of interest in making you know high strength materials which are resistant to bombardment 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 pardon me by plasmas, and uh, yeah, and all all of these engineering issues are there. And the third very important point is about having materials which are resistant to new neutrons because as i mentioned the fusion reactions generate neutrons and these neutrons go through the reactor walls uh, but occasionally they do interact with some of the structural materials of the reactor and uh, yeah and this may have like long-term uh, consequences for the strength of some of these materials but there's a lot of active research linked to fusion about making uh, more uh, neutron resistant um, materials to be able to you know, sustain fusion reactions for a longer time and uh, need to do le less maintenance on the on the reactor, for example. And that's also an active field of research, both in the theory field, I believe, and also experimentally to try to test these kinds of materials. Now, as to your second part of the question, if it would enable new th things, um, yeah, yes, I, I think so. Like in many cases, for the I know for for stellarators and for tokamaks, for sure, the kind of things you can do. The kind of reactors you can make are just constrained by how you can construct a superconducting coil and by what kind of materials exist to absorb all of the heat in the in the plasma. These are really engineering constraints, which people who design future fusion reactors based either on tokamaks or accelerators have to deal with 
um, every day as a strong constraint to their reactor designs. So indeed, having, uh, for example, high temperature superconductors advances there have led recently actually to a number of new um, activities of people designing new tokamaks using technologies and materials which maybe didn't exist 20 years ago, which maybe indeed can have, um, yeah, can really push the the envelope uh, on on some some of these some of these things, and hopefully bring fusion uh, to us as a source of electricity more quick quickly. So definitely, Thank everything yeah, around my, materials my apologies is extremely for... important. My apologies for asking a question that was perhaps uh, a little off topic, but uh, we always hear no, that fusion no, uh, is 20 years away, 20 years away. And, uh, you know, we've been saying that about AI and it's getting closer and closer and always feels like we're 20 years away. So I was, uh, that was kind of the origin of the question, but thank you. Thank you. And I, I have to apologize. I've overlooked Dr. Shaw and Dr. Felici. Is it okay if she asks? Yeah, that's okay. Question? Thank you so much for your no generosity. Problem. Okay. Dr. Shah, thank you so much, Victoria and Federico. That was wonderful. I mean, talk. So my question is about the multi-domain plasma demonstration that you just mentioned, and also in a part of that, uh, you said that two separate plasma exist within the vessel simultaneously. So my question is about what about the plasma disruption? Do we have this situation? I mean, in this model that you just explained, because we know that we have a, I mean, sometimes it's happened. And as a part of the, I mean, reactor, a good reactor should uh, have some kind of uh, configuration. We know about this part. So did you, do you have any thoughts around that? Yeah, so maybe uh, to separate the question. So, um... So the, the, the plasmas where we have two plasmas at the same time, this is really something we're doing for scientific exploration to try to understand uh, what, 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 what happens when you have these two and when you try to merge them sort of slowly uh, together. It's really a scientific experiment. And yes, indeed, in these plasmas, we do have disruptions. So disruptions mean that the plasma, the current in the plasma is terminated very quickly and the plasma just disappears because it just cools down and is no longer, no longer stable. Uh, and in TCV, in the smaller reactors like TCV, that's really not, not a big deal. This is something that, uh, you know, all the materials in the reactor can de deal with this without any issue. This is not uh, a, a big, big problem. That's why we're free and have the flexibility to explore all of these fancy new configurations without being afraid to actually damage anything. Uh, so that's the first part. And the, the plasma with the two, uh, yeah, the double plasma, we don't know whether it has any advantages or not from the point of view of the of the of the disruptions. We simply don't know, and that's part of the scientific curiosity and of the scientific investigation to try to find that out somehow. Now, the other um, question about disruptions in a more general way in uh, in nuclear fusion reactors in tokamaks in particular, disruptions have for a long time been recognized as one of the things we need to be worried about in. Uh, in the in the in the reaction reactors fusion reactors in the in the future, so we have to be careful how we design the control systems to be able to de deal with with them. Now, um, of course, there's a lot that you can do in terms of actually operating your tokamak, so operating your plasma far away from the operational limits where it might be more likely that such a disruption can occur. Right, you can operate in a very conservative way and maybe keep the plasma pressure low and then you're sure that that this is very unlikely to 
to happen. So you have some kind of a mar margin of, uh, of, of, of uh, yeah, some kind of a control margin and you're sure you don't re reach these kind of li limits. But that being, that being sa said, um, you don't rely only on the control system to protect yourself against these kind of uh, pla plasma, plasma disruption. There's all sorts of different systems which in case that something goes wrong in the control can still make sure that uh, the plasma is terminated in a, in a way that does not, let's say, cause any damage to the actual re reactor. And I should also stress again, because often this is a source of confusion and misunderstanding, that the worst thing that could uh, happen if all these systems would fa fail, again, they are all designed as engineering systems to not fail and to always be able to um, to uh, uh, to avoid any kind of damage to the reactor, but the only bad thing that could happen is that some parts of the reactor may become da damaged. Uh, there is no real uh, uh, scenario or no real case in which any kind of damage or harm could come to you know the environment or to surrounding uh, people working on the working uh, close to the tokamak or things like 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 that it's really not something we need to worry uh, worry uh, worry about simply because of the nature of nuclear fusion is that whenever anything happens that goes wrong the plasma just immediately stops it's incredibly hard to maintain the fusion plasma so as soon as anything goes wrong the reaction will just uh, will just stop stop and everything will be okay again so no alien wormholes right no so alien no alien wormholes no uh, nuclear me meltdowns no black black holes either. I, as far as I as far as I know, so no, all of this is going to be is going to be really okay. Again, the disruptions are a concern for you know making sure that you can actually operate your reactor and that nothing in the reactor will break. break. But this is a topic of very active uh, uh, investigations. And for ITER, for example, we do have engineering solutions now, and some of them are being tested more extensively in existing reactors as we speak. We do have uh, we do have solutions for all uh, all all these things, but it is indeed a serious concern. And the uh, the stuff I've been showing today, the control, the axisymmetric control, so that's the magnetic control using the magnetic coils, is let's say the first la line of defense against trying against for avoiding these disruptions. While many other layers of protection around that uh, uh, exist on top top of this. So maybe interesting to say. At this point in time, if somebody asks me, would you let the AI control the entire tokamak and you know do whatever it it whatever it it whatever it, it wants to do, I would say no. I would say you can use AI to optimize the operation of a given reactor, but always within the context of having other much, much simpler systems, which would actually make sure that even if the AI or whatever controller does anything completely wrong, that the the plasma is still terminated in a way that doesn't cause any kind of damage. So I think that's very important to, to say also to take away some of the concerns that, you know, AI has now learned to uh, make a nuclear fusion and will uh, turn against us in some way. Perfect, thank you. So uh, would you be uh, be so nice to uh, pinpoint the uh, the references that uh, specifically about the uh, the two um, units, the critic and the uh, and the control uh, critic uh, control neural net. So the this is all mentioned in the paper. I think the detail of the um, 
of that is mentioned in the paper. So page in the, in the nature numbering 415 talks about the actual learning and training architecture. And the, let me see if I can find the details of the neural network architecture. Yeah, that's in the supplementary article data. So that's page, uh, uh, oh, there's no numbering here. It's like 420. Yes, in the methods section, there's a part about the neural net network architecture, which explains all of that. And there's many references to how all of these things are, are done in the, in the paper. Thank you, Dr. Philippe. Thank You've you been much. so, so clear. And, and yes, Hansen, you will find everything is there in his paper, as well as there were a few links that were posted in the chat before you arrived. So thank you for coming, Hansen. Thank you very much, everyone. And Katarina, I will let you close us out. Yeah, thank you so much, um, everyone, for coming and asking all these great questions. And the special thanks, of course, to you, Federico, uh, for taking the time and coming here and for doing your amazing research that will hopefully save humanity. So <laughs> the last question is, how long until we can do all the carbon capture and have all the energy we need to fix all of our issues? What does your... That's my last question. What do you think? How long it will take? Yeah, thank I'm you. So that's a, uh, that's okay. That's uh, that's a, a question that I get quite uh, quite re regularly. Not not only on occasions like this, but also when I talk to my friends or to with people I meet somewhere. They always want to know, you know, how far are we from having nuclear fusion as a way that can solve all of our energy needs? The answer is I don't know, and the answer is I think nobody nobody know knows. Um, um, I think I, I'm getting more optim optimistic, let's say, these last couple of years because of indeed this convergence of various various things. There's all these advances in the high temperature superconductors, which are very interesting and very good. There is some there is, you know, all the work on the construction site for for ether, which is finally starting to converge and to come to uh, you know something which might which you know which is going to be completed and is going to operate in the next uh, next couple of years uh, these new results from the jet jet tokamak for example and also i want to stress all the incredible efforts around trying to understand all of the f f physics that's going on in the fusion reactors which really means that now we can predict much better than we could 10 years ago or 20 years ago what happened inside the uh, tokamak inside the fusion re re reactor and then now bringing in also all these fantastic artificial intelligence advances which really enable new ways of thinking about problems new ways of solving problems new ways of optimizing things all these things means that i actually see a kind of acceler acceleration now in this in this work um so i don't know it's not going to be in five year, year, years for sure uh, maybe not in ten, ten in ten, ten year, years, but after ten years, I don't know. It could could it could go much more quickly than we expect. Also, because a lot of it really depends on you know how much uh, effort and how many resources various uh, uh, various group groups, both you know pri privately funded initiatives and government funded initiatives, how much time and how much priority and how much uh, resources these are going to to have and i think as we get more scientific breakthroughs with uh, you know getting better results on the existing um, uh, existing reactors or better simulations 
the more incentive there will be also for various people, various entities to actually invest in this uh, technology. And then we may see a very fast uh, acceleration and this could come relatively soon. I also want to say, sorry, sorry, I'm getting very long, but I also want to say that it's not like one day you're going to read in the newspaper that we have the fusion reactor and everything is, is, is done. It will go in steps. First, there will be the first fusion reactor, which generates more electricity, more pa power from coming out of the plasma than what we're putting in. Then there will be the whole work, which might take another ma many years to get from that demonstration in a scientific experiment in a laboratory like e ITER will be an experiment. Then to get to the stage where you can actually make a, a prototype of an actual commercial, commercial fusion uh, reactor, which really makes electricity and puts electricity on the grid. That's another step which might take many years from the first scientific demonstration. So, and then from the first reactor prototype to having it everywhere available and coming out of your uh, electrical socket, that might take still much more time, right? Like the invention of electricity was something which, you know, happened. The invention of electricity, between the invention of electricity and having everybody in their homes having electricity from their plugs took a long, long time, as you as you know. So this is all going to take a very long time and we shouldn't use fusion as an excuse to not do anything about, you know, fossil fuels, a reduction of fossil fuel use, renewables with the technologies which already exist. You know, we shouldn't be like, uh, like in Star Trek hoping that this technology will fix everything now, uh, not certainly not within one t TV, uh, TV episode. So, so, you know, as sometimes happens there, we really need <laughs> to think of fusion as a really long-term thing, as a thing for future for maybe the second half of the 21st century and for the 22nd century and for the future of humanity for many, many centuries. And in the meantime, we should do, make the right decisions right now to, uh, you know, do what we can with the technologies that we have now and take care of the planet without, you know, waiting for fusion to come along and fix, uh, fix everything. I would say that uh, one thing that is probably limiting is the seasons of uh, funding by governments. So governments tend to have a decade-long seasoning spans uh, of, uh, you know, support. So, for example, the last 10 years was AI research, and now we have all this AI progress. So if anyone here does want to support this kind of work, one of the things that I found is quite effective is contacting your senator, your member of parliament, your government representatives, or even your king, wherever you find yourself in the world, and say you want to support this kind of research. It shows you know, uh, promise, there's energy independence, kumbaya, all that stuff. So I think that's something that often does tend to sit on the back burner, but that actually makes some of the biggest decisions whether this kind of work gets supported. So if anyone here has the ear of the government or would like to do that, please go ahead. I know I sure will. Thanks. Thank, Thank you. you, Eric. Thank you. I really appreciate when people remind all of us that we need to be active and use the power that's in our vote and our voices and help register people to vote. And wherever you are, stay active, vote down ballot, even for members of your school board. So thank you, Eric. I appreciate that so much. Yeah, I imagine that it's in the interest of governments to be the first also. I mean, whoever develops this first wins, right? Right now, it's the same as with quantum computing. Um, so yeah, I hope you get a lot of funding more than you need, <laughs> which is never the case. Yeah, thank but... you, yes. And it's not, it's not only funding we need, it's also we need we need also good people and good scientists. As I said, you know, I'm I'm uh, I'm now 39. Actually, tomorrow I'm turning 
40 year, years old, but I'm still relatively young here in the in the fusion co community. And we need, you know, because this is a really a, a generational uh, effort, as I said, since the 1960s, people have been working on this. And I'm sure in 30 or 40 years from now, people will still be working on some aspects of fusion means we need this continuous uh, stream of new scientists, new engineers uh, coming into this kind of field. So studying, you know, studying math and science in high school and then choosing a career path in uh, in science and, um, you know, and then cho choosing to work for, for example, for nuclear fusion or other things to help uh, the environment or to point to renewable energy in the lo long term, long term few, few future. I think that's also a very important part of the of the story that in the end, you know, no, no um, amount of government funding can help in the long term if you don't aren't able to school and to uh, to 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 educate the people who actually have to do uh, this in the in the lo longer longer ter term and to maintain this kind of work, not only in fusion, but in all aspects of technology and uh, and of engineering yeah i totally agree and one part of it is to make science look more attractive again and something interesting and exciting and also it's a very interesting lifestyle and a lot of the kids don't realize you know, you get to travel a lot you get to speak in conferences all over the world it's it's kind of a very different lifestyle and um yeah, and we are trying here with Science Society to contribute to have a more accurate image of science and scientists. Um, and um, yeah, that's why, you know, we do this here. So and hopefully this brings an awareness and that people support more uh, STEM um, in in schools and especially also for girls. Right. I'm also very um, interested in interested in having girls um being like actively involved in in science and and interested in keeping supporting them so uh, my daughter and i absolutely write like uh, kids books for girls um that are related to science and the small girl that's my daughter's name because yeah because i realized you know at least in the us the kids books uh with science content are mostly designed in a way that's attractive for boys, but not for girls. So the girls always choose like stupid books with princesses and unicorns. And, and it's a big difference already there when they just start reading what they read. Like my boys always bring home like dinosaurs and all spy related stuff, you know, it's always with information and the pink books are always stupid books. So we, we are trying to help change that. But this is on a bigger scale. So I hope, yeah, please come back with any update or if you want to talk about your research again at some point, we are always happy to have you here and help you maybe recruit more people. <laughs> <laughs> and um yeah thank you everyone for coming and um spread the word um and uh come back we'll have more guest speakers here this week uh, if you're interested go on the little uh greenhouse symbol that you will see uh either you just follow the club or check on the schedule 
So we'll actually have today at 9 p.m. Dr. Balkan. She will talk about mental illness um, due to early life stress and glia dysfunction. And then we'll have to, uh, on Wednesday Dr. Bolani talking about gut bacteria associated with personality traits. And on Thursday, we have a rejuvenation room where Dr. Gabelan was successful in a mitochondria transplantation between living cells. Um, that's kind of a key thing that was missing in rejuvenation. And um, then we'll have biomolecule mixes and how they communicate, interact, and adapt independently. Um, yeah, and we'll have uh, using molecular orbital-based machine learning by uh, Dr. Cheryl Cheng. So yeah, come back and um, if you're interested in these type of talks, and thank you Federico again for coming. This was an outstanding, amazing room and your research is so important. So um, thank you, we really appreciate it and we are honored. Thank you very, very much, much for talking. having me. It was an honor uh, and a real pleasure to speak, speak to you all, and I really enjoy, enjoyed it. Okay, thank, thank you, you everyone. And close the room in three, two. Thank you, everyone. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone.